we are, uh, today I'm preaching a message that I'm entitling The Power of Love. And um, this is something that has been heavy on my heart. Um, when I was starting to prepare uh, the message today, um, it, it was going in a completely different direction. It, it, it started for this journey that I had been on for probably the last year. And it was something that I really wanted to share, that I really wanted to share. And um, just in, in my prayer time and things, the Lord kind of shifted me in a different direction. And I, I, I feel that this is a word, it's timely, and that it hopefully will minister to you as much as it has ministered to me. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go ahead and jump into the word. Lord Jesus, we come before you right now. God, we open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us this morning, Lord Jesus. Will you speak to us in such a way that we know in our inner being what you long for us to learn this morning, Jesus? We love you. We welcome you. Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to worship in your presence. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. So we're going to start out uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And this is kind of the, the, uh, the, the starting point. It's a launching point for us to talk this morning. And it says, if I could speak all the languages of the earth. Oh, and I apologize first in advance. Uh, I, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. Um, I, I'm a millennial, and I, I have to take a minute and apologize for my generation. We, we do things a little bit differently. Uh, we just like to do our own kind of thing, and we like to, to read different translations, things that, that speak different. And, and millennials, are, they're great. We are great. You know, we're, we're, very, we're very well-rounded individuals. You know, we, we have been raised up in liberal arts education, so we're very well-rounded. We're, some of us are very well-spoken. We're very opinionated. We, we have a lot of very good qualities, but we also have a lot of very bad qualities. And so I apologize on behalf of my generation. Um, if any of you are business owners, Owners or uh, managers or employers, we are the worst generation to employ ever, 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 ever. I, it's, it's terrible. We'll, we'll do about an hour's worth of hard work, and we can't do it without Instagramming, Facebooking, or, or tweet, Twittering about it, right? Tweeting, forgive me. We, we just can't. We can't go an hour without posting something, you know, how bad our day's going or how awesome our day's going. We, can't, we physically, it is a compulsion. We cannot do something without tweeting about it. We just can't. And we also... Once we do about an hour of work, and then we, I, I, I'm pretty sure we're the only generation that ever does something, and then immediately after, we have to do something for our soul. We have to. We, we did all the work, and now we have, to, we have to have some me time, because if not, our tweets won't be as good. And so I apologize, my generation. We, uh, we're growing. We're learning. Have patience with us. Uh, but here we go. We're reading out of the New Living Translation. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. If I could speak all the languages of the earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but I did not love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my own body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. This is a beautiful passage written by Paul, talking about the importance and the power of love. All of these things that we strive for as Christians, whether it be having the faith to move mountains, or as he says, speaking prophecy. If I could speak all the languages of the earth, if we could, if, if I could climb the hill of, of the, uh, of 
if I could climb the hill of academics and become the most well-spoken, well-versed, most linguistically um, excelled person in the world, but I didn't love anyone, all of that would mean nothing. If, if, I, if I rose to the heights of Christianity and became a prophet to all nations where I could stand here and tell you everything that you're thinking and everything that you've ever done, and I spoke in tongues and I had a healing miniature, I did all of these things and yet didn't love, or some, some translations say didn't do these things in love or out of a place of love, then it would all be for nothing. Without love, we absolutely have nothing. We are nothing. And I think that is so interesting because, you know, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, John tells us that God is love. And it's interesting that with God being love, all of the essence of love being God, without that love... We have nothing and we are nothing. So even here, Paul is echoing the backgrounds of Scripture. He's echoing John by saying, we do all these things, but if we don't do it with love or we don't have love or we don't love or we don't have, in other words, in John's words, if we don't have God, we are nothing. We are absolutely nothing. And I just find that so, so interesting that we can do everything to the highest tip of man's potential, of the highest point of man's power, and it's still without Christ, without love, it is nothing. In John chapter 10, verse 10, I want to kind of, we're going to mirror, we're going to look at, at, at God and love and what we can do with love, but we're also going to look at the enemy, and we're going we're gonna to contrast the two. In John chapter 10, verse 10, this is a verse that we all know very well. It says that the thief's purpose is to steal to kill and to destroy. But my purpose, Jesus speaking, but my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Some translations you may know it as saying, and give them life and life more abundantly. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, this verse is, it touches me in, in a very real place because this is, this verse is my testimony. Um, when I was five years old, I, from a young child, I grew up in a Christian home. My grandfather, uh, has been in ministry for over 60 years. Since he was 16 years old, he's been in full-time ministry preaching, whether it be on a street corner or in front of the president of the Philippines. He, he's done it all. He's been all over the world and preached for 60 decades. He raised my mother in church. My mother and my father raised me in church. I've always been around God. And I've known from a young age that I was called to minister. From a very young age, it's all it's been prophesied me and spoken over me since I could walk that I would carry the message of Christ to the world. And... When I was five years old, um, I had an accident. I was, uh, I was in the shower and goofing off as, as children do, and I slipped and managed to um, cut my wrist very, very deeply, very, very badly. Um, not to be too graphic, but my babysitter, who, yeah, my babysitter was there. My parents were actually out at a church service, and so lucky, lucky babysitter gets to deal with this accident. Um, and my babysitter described uh, which, which she said when only she could describe is spaghetti hanging out of the open wound in my arm. Um, I had massive blood loss. By the time that I got to the hospital, um, the doctors, one, were surprised that I was even alive, and two, because of the massive amount of blood loss, um, and two were very doubtful that I would make it 
through the procedure. The, the, the amount of blood loss was so great that the doctors did not have time to surgically repair any of the severed tendons and ligaments in my wrist that connect my, my hand to the rest of my body. They did not have enough time because they had to stop the bleeding. So basically, they just kind of shoved everything back in there and sewed me up. And um, here I am, 20, what am I, 27, just turned 27, 22 years later, and I play music for a living. Um, see, you can't really play the guitar or the piano very well without your left hand. And by all medical means, because of the severity of my injury and the necessity of just trying to stop the blood loss, I should not have any use of my left hand. And yet, today I stand here, literally, I play music for a living. That is my, my job. And see, the enemy... He comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He tried to kill me that day. There is no doubt at all that the enemy was after my life in that moment. He wanted to, he knew what I was called to do. He knew the type of man that I would become, and he wanted me gone. But if he couldn't kill me, he was going to try to destroy my future and steal my gifting. But see, the thing is, God had a different plan. And that is my testimony. And I, I still, you guys can see it after church, I have a... a pretty hefty scar still on my wrist every day that I see. Every, every single time I wash my hands, every time I put on a watch, I see this wrist and I'm constantly reminded of God's grace upon my life and the power that he has to heal. And this has nothing at all to do with my message this morning, but I feel the moving of the Holy Spirit to say that if there is healing, if you, if you need healing in your body or you know someone where the, the prognosis is very poor, me... I am here standing in front of you today saying that nothing is impossible for God. It, the worst situation, was, I was dead. I had lost so much blood that the doctors were surprised I even was alive. And yet here I stand today, not just alive, but with full use of my hand and using my hand to minister to the body of Christ. Nothing is impossible with God. But that's not what I came here to say this morning. Um, so the enemy has... His job, his purpose, his goal in this world is to destroy us, to kill us, to steal what he can from us, and, and to end our life, especially as Christians. He hates human beings, period. He hates us. He hates us because we have what he doesn't have, the ability to rule with Christ when, it, when it's all said and done. We have that power. We have that ability. He doesn't. He can't, and he hates us for it. Even more so, than hating human beings, he hates Christians, especially because we are going to rule and reign with Christ at the end of, at the end of days. And um, right now, when you look at our world, you see that it's, it's in a, a state of disarray. It's in a, he, he is succeeding right now in destroying our culture, in destroying our nation, in destroying our world. Um, the first thing that he, he is looking at is political division. I mean, you know, we've had our, our, uh, Republican National Convention here. Um, the, this, this, this election more so than any, I don't know if I'm just more aware of the election as I get older or it's just never quite been like this, but people are at each other's throats. And it's not just Democrats versus Republicans. We, you know, Republicans in the Republican Party, they're ripping each other to pieces. There's division in the Democratic Party. Independents are off doing their own thing, and they don't like anybody. And we have this just big, it's, it's terrible. The, the, the 
politics, the ruling of our nation, the thing that is supposed to, to help us come together as Americans and celebrate the beautiful form of government that we have in a, in a, um, in, here in America, and yet it's causing possibly one of the biggest divisions in our nation. I mean, I, you know, just in this room, I'm sure we have at least three or four different candidates that people all wish could be president, and I'm sure there's a lot of us that don't like any of them. You know, and, and it's just, it's, it's a big case of destruction. The enemy has come in and, and turned this beautiful thing that God created, our form of government, because our nation, I don't care what anybody says, our nation was founded on godly principles. I, I, I studied history in college, I studied political science in college, and there's no refuting the fact that our founding fathers and our founding documents are rooted in scripture and are rooted on a foundation of Christ. There's no doubt about it. And yet somehow the enemy over these last 200, 250 years, the enemy has come in and twisted what God created and, and what man created with God in partnership to make this beautiful country. He's twisted it and destroyed it at our roots in, uh, in, in, in our politics. There's Look everywhere around you, terrorism is running rampant, not just in America, but overseas. We, we had the... Um, the issue in in uh, in France, and then we just had another attack in Germany. Not to mention all the repeated attacks that have happened in California and Orlando and Fort Hood. All of these things w- with terrorism. Um, this is not a uh, a very popular thing to say, and a lot of people won't say it. But um, radical Islam is the spirit of the Antichrist. It is. There's, there's no refuting it. I'm not saying Muslims are the Antichrist. I'm not saying the, the religion or believing in that religion makes you the Antichrist. But radical Islam is a tool of the enemy that is attacking the body of Christ. It is a spirit of Antichrist. And there's no refuting it. There's no denying it. And it is attacking us and it's ripping this place apart. The enemy is moving through these people that need Jesus more than anybody else on the planet. They need Jesus so bad and he's using them to cause terror, and to kill people, destroy nations, rip people's lives apart. Our enemy, the enemy is, is doing a good job. He's got our world in, in disarray. And here in our, in our own country, we are in the middle of race wars. This is one of the, in my opinion, the saddest times in American history is right now. We have people... Americans, we're one people that have been brought here by the grace of God to live in this wonderful country, and yet we are at each other's throats because of the color of our skin. Whether or not you think there's a problem with cops, you may think there is a problem, you may think there's not a problem. And whether, and whether or not there is or isn't, that doesn't matter. There's a perceived problem in our country. There's a group of people that feel that they are on the outskirts and they are being discriminated against. And that is a, that is a problem. Whether the, 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 the root of their problem is real or tangible or not, that is, makes no difference. We as the, as the body of Christ should react to them as if they were hurting and they are, and they, they are in trouble because that's our job. We need to bring unity. The enemy is coming and dividing us. It was something that is so silly. The color of your skin, nobody can help what color they are. And it doesn't matter what color you are. Yes, it's wonderful to be a white person. It's wonderful to be a black person. God made us all. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. The human race is so colorful. It's beautiful. And yet, here we have a, a members of our society, a section of our society that feels that they are being wronged. And most of the body of Christ is just telling them, oh, just get over it. Who cares? It's not a big deal. You're making it up. Even if they are making it up, 
we should still be loving them and trying to bridge the gap that's happening right now because the enemy is using this to tear us to pieces. He is trying to steal the joy and steal the unity that the body of Christ has amongst itself, and it's working. That's the worst part. The worst part of, of the Black Lives Matter movement or the, the, the br- police brutality, the worst part of this all is that it is tearing apart the body of Christ. And we need to stop it. We need to love our brothers and sisters. We need to minister the gospel and love people as if um, they were our next door neighbors or if they were our children. God said, or Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, that blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. So right now in a world that is full of political division, full of terrorism, full of race wars, our job is not to point fingers. Our job is not to find out what the root of the problem is. Our job is to be peacemakers. If we want to be called children of God, if we want to to be part of the body of Christ and to love people the way Jesus loved them, we need to bring peace. We need to bring unity. Because the world isn't going to do it. Fox News isn't going to do it. CNN isn't going to do it. It's not going to happen. The police are not going to do it. Black Lives Matter are not going to do it. We need to do it. We need to join together in unity and love people and fix our fallen culture because there's not anyone in this room that can deny that we need help in America. And if you, if you do deny that, I don't know what rock you've been sitting under (laughs) because it's, it's, it's just not. But let's go back to John chapter 10, verse 10. And I love this translation. The New Living Translation, I, I, I was, this Bible right here uh, was bought for me when I graduated high school. It's about 10 years old, and there's not a page on it that doesn't have red ink somewhere. The, it's falling apart, it's bending, the, you can't even read like the, what it is on the side. I, I love this Bible so, so much, and it was given to me as a 17-year-old kid, and it's a New Living Translation, and it just, it made the Word come alive to me in a way that it never had before. And here I am 10 years later, I'm still reading it. I preach from it. I, I love it. I love it, love it, love it. And I love this version, what it says here, because this is, this is where I want to shift our focus here, is that it says the thief's purpose is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So his whole purpose, the reason that he lives, the thing that drives him that he gets up in the morning to do is to come here and to steal and to kill and to destroy us, plain and simple. And yet Jesus says, but my purpose is to do the exact opposite, is to give you life and life more abundantly, or as the New Living puts it, to give them a rich and satisfying life. And so we're talking about love this morning. We, you know, we talked, we said how if we did all these wonderful things, if we rose to the climax of human potential, but we didn't love, we would be nothing. But see, I, I would argue, and I will, I will argue this morning, and I hope you agree with me, that it's not just about loving people, but it's loving people with a purpose. We have to love with a purpose. We have to love people with the kingdom of God in mind. And when I say people, I mean everybody. You need to love your children with the kingdom in mind. You need to love your husband or your wife with the kingdom in mind. You need to love your mother with the kingdom in mind. 
When, whenever you do something, when you do something out of love, everything that you do should be driven by the kingdom. And I know what some of you are thinking, but Michael, that's like an ulterior motive. When I, I shouldn't be loving someone to get them into the kingdom of God because that's, that's, that's an ulterior motive. That's not truly loving someone. And I would argue that that's not true. That is not true at all. Because, you know, Jesus, when Jesus came, everything that he did, every word that he spoke, everything that he did was for the kingdom of God, was to further the kingdom. And he is the perfect example of what a Christian should be. And so we should be modeling everything that we do after what he did. But Michael, I, you, I, I can't love my wife all the time thinking about furthering the kingdom of God. That's, that's not right. I should love her because she's my wife. But we are the bride of Christ. And the whole purpose that we are the bride of Christ is because Christ wants to accept us into his kingdom. Everything Jesus did on this earth, everything, the story of the Bible is all about the kingdom of God. Everything we do, just like Jesus, should be with the purpose of furthering the kingdom of God. Um, 1 John 4.19, 1 John 4.19 says that we love only because what? He first loved us. And if he is loving us with the kingdom in mind, which he is, literally the story of the Bible from front to back, from front to back, from Genesis to Revelation is all about the kingdom of God. And if he loves us with the kingdom in mind, we should also love others with the kingdom in mind and with nothing else in mind. When you love someone, you love with a purpose. And what is that purpose? The kingdom of God. Let's look. Let's look. Michael, what about the story of the Bible? What are you talking about? Let's look at the story of the Bible. God created a kingdom. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is God's kingdom. He's establishing his kingdom on this planet. And God says, I'm going to create a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, and they are going to rule my kingdom. That's what I'm setting them. And he told Adam to tend to the garden, to name the animals, and to be fruitful and multiply. Adam has now become the king of the earth. That's what he was there for. God set Adam and Eve in place to rule the world, and they failed. They sinned. Plain and simple. So, what does God do? Well, he brings Abraham. Abraham, father Abraham, the father of many nations. He, he fathers the nation of Israel. He becomes, he, he, through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And he creates the nation of Israel through his descendants. And Israel is then instructed by God to take over the world and to rule his kingdom. They are the chosen people of God. They have dominion over all other nations. And their job is to rule the kingdom for God. Israel failed. They turned their backs. Go read the Old Testament. All throughout the book of First and Second Kings, Israel is constantly turning their back. The book of Judges, they turn their back. Then God sends someone to help rescue them. And then they turn back to God, but then they turn their back. So here we have Abraham set as the father of Israel so that Israel can, be, can rule his kingdom. And Israel fails. So then what does God do? God sends his son. God sends Jesus here to earth to give his life so that we might 
we, and I mean we, all of, all of the people of God, might be justified before Christ so that we now can, can be joined and grafted into the family of God, grafted into the nation of Israel, and we can all, as a, as a body, as a human race, we can now rule the world. That's what Jesus came for. He came to, but to fulfill the story of Israel and to open up the next chapter of all the nations of all the world being joined to the body of Christ so that we can rule his kingdom here on this planet. But now we are failing. We are following in the steps of Israel. We are following in the steps of Adam and Eve, and we are failing at ruling this kingdom. If we weren't, we wouldn't have all the things we've just been discussing for the last 20 minutes. Amen? And so finally, the end of the story, the day that we are all waiting for is when God will finally come back. Christ will finally come in awesome victory and he will fight back and take back his kingdom once and for all. And he will sit with his bride and rule here on the earth. And that's how the story ends. And that, when I talk about the story of the Bible, that's what I'm talking about. The whole story of scripture is completely 100% centered on what? The kingdom of God. And so when we love each other, we should be loving each other for the kingdom. And how do we love people for the kingdom? How do we do it? How, how do I love, spend every day of my life loving people for the kingdom? Well, that's a very obvious answer, I think. We can all agree. And that's preaching the gospel, sharing the love of Christ with people. But here's the thing. The gospel is not just getting people saved. Somehow, in evangelical circles, now we, we, put, we do a great job of putting an emphasis on personal salvation, because that's important. That is so, so, so important. So, um, salvation is found in every sermon in the book of Acts. Every single one, if you go read the book of Acts, personal salvation is touched upon. And personal salvation resonates under and on the pages of every single apostolic letter. It's there. Personal salvation is a very important thing. But, as a friend told me this past week as we were having coffee, we can have everything in Christ and still need more of God. There is more to the gospel, there is more to the kingdom of God than just salvation. We put such an emphasis, somehow in apostolic circles, we have created this salvation culture where it's all about getting people to the cross and we create a gospel that is centered on salvation and says nothing about transformation. See, a gospel focused on salvation that ignores transformation is not a gospel at all. And so when we love people, when we love people with a purpose, when we dig into the kingdom and we live our lives in constant efforts to bring the kingdom of God to this earth, it's more than just getting people saved. We have to, have to, have to minister people and teach people about Jesus. Jesus never said, go into all the world and get people saved. Never once. Read the Bible. I promise you, it's not there. He never said, go into all the world and get people saved. What did he say? Go into all the world and make disciples. What is a disciple? It's someone that learns. It's someone whose life is devoted to learning everything they can about the teachings of Jesus and who he was as a person. And so our job here is not to to teach people the gospel in a way to just get them saved, but it's to get them hooked so that they can then fall in love 
with the same man that we've all fallen in love with. I love what N.T. Wright says here. He says that the gospel is the story of, the, of Jesus of Nazareth told as the climax of the long story of Israel, which in turn is the true story of how one, the one true God is rescuing the world. I think that is so beautifully said. Um, Scott McKnight says this, personal faith is both necessary and non-negotiable. The gospel does not work for spectators. You have to participate for it to work its powers. The gospel is not just a prayer that you say to get someone saved. The gospel is a lifestyle. It's something that we must interact with. We must do it on a regular basis. We have to, have to, have to live it out. I love here what Doug Coe says. Um, this quote from Doug Coe, it says that the gospel is not how much you know about Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. When we live our lives with a purpose, when we love with a purpose, Jesus is that purpose. The kingdom of God is that purpose. It has to be a purpose. It has to be our purpose. And here, this next part um, might be a little hard to hear. It's a little hard to say. Um, But you are never, ever, ever going to get someone into the kingdom of God by telling them how bad they are. You will never do it. Yelling at people and telling them that they're living in sin will not work. Oh, but Michael, John the Baptist, he ran out into the wilderness and shouted, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Yes, and John the Baptist also was in first century Israel. Speaking to a people that did not have technology and speaking to people that frankly had tougher skin than we have today. It's a completely different different world. It was a completely different time period. And I'm not saying that just because things were said and done in the first century and they're not applicable today. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying as people change, so do strategies to reach them for the gospel. And today, I promise you, telling people how bad they are will never get them into the kingdom of God. It's never going to happen. Me standing up here and telling you how bad of a Christian you are is not going to make you want to become a better Christian, will it? It's going to make you angry and probably never come back to this church. That's, that's, that's probably what's going to happen, right? So we, we can't point at people and say, you're sinning, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, and expect them to be coming, to come into the kingdom. And I want to, I'm, I'm going to read this because I want to make sure that I say it right because I loved what I wrote here. We are not called to love people out of their sin. We are called to love people into the kingdom. It is not our job to convict people. It is not our job to save them from their sins. That's the job of the Holy Spirit and the cross. Our job is to love people so unrelenting that they have no choice but to come and be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Then that's when the blood of Christ and the moving and the power of the Holy Spirit can come in and change someone and transform somebody. But that's not us. I can't do it on my own. I have no power within myself to save you from your sins or to change the way that you act. Only the Holy Spirit can do it. Only the blood of Christ can save us from our sins. And so our job is not to love people out of their sin. Even though that may be a genuinely good motive. I know a lot of people that love people that want to love people out of their sin but it's not going to happen. Most of the time, what happens when you try to love someone out of their sin is you become an enabler. 
I know lots of people that love and love and love and tell people, no, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay that you do these things, it's okay. And they love them and they try to love and think, if I just, if I just keep loving them, if I just keep doing this, if I just keep pushing and telling them, then they're going to realize that it's, it's, it won't happen. What ends up happening is they, they just accept that what they're doing is okay and you get things like people, I had a coworker that um, she was talking all about how she had gone out and partied the night before and how she was hungover this morning and, and how I, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this work. And, um, and I, said, uh, I said something about something about church. It was a snide, young, youthful, immature comment, um, just kind of to joke around but still try to, you know, love someone out of their sin. And, um, and you know what she said back to me? I said something about, you know, oh, well, you know, had you been at church last night, that wouldn't have happened, you know, something like that. And uh, she said, oh, no, Michael, Michael, it's all right. Me, me and God, me and Jesus, we're good. He understands. He knows me. He understands my sin. He knows what I struggle with. We're good. It's all good. It's okay. And she... She genuinely believed this. And I don't know this for a fact, but I'm almost 100% positive that this, the reason that she thought her sin was okay, that going out and getting drunk and throwing your life away to the, to the gods of alcoholism, the reason she thought this was because she had a godly mother that tried to love her out of her sin, tried with every ounce of her being to tell her that God, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. It's okay, it's okay. God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. And she was so focused on getting her saved and she said a sinner's prayer. She got her fire insurance. She did, I, I, she's told me that, that she had a real encounter with Christ and she gave her life to Christ. The problem is that when we try to love people out of their sin and we focus on salvation as the center of the gospel, People become deceived and they start thinking that it's totally okay to run around and live your life however you want to do it and there's no consequences or there's no, I'm still a Christian, we're good, me and God are good, he understands. We have to love people into the kingdom because when we get them into the kingdom, then that allows the Holy Spirit to come in and transform us and to change us and to renew our mind with the washing of the word. It's a beautiful thing when we love people into the kingdom, but we cannot, we will not, never, never will we ever fill up the kingdom by telling somebody how bad that they are. And I'm going to read this last little bit, and then we're going to close. When we share the gospel, we aren't just trying to... um, to convince people, can't read my own handwriting. When we share the gospel, we aren't just trying to convince people that they need forgiven of their sins. We are trying to introduce them to a man who loves them more than his own life. A man who wrote the greatest love story ever told and then lived it. We are introducing them to a king who not only can save them from hell, but can make them part of an eternal kingdom in which they are royalty. So this morning as we close, love with a purpose. Love your wife with a purpose. Love your kids with a purpose. Love your neighbor with a purpose. Love other races with a purpose. Love other sexual orientations with a purpose. Love those who sin differently than you with a purpose. Love the world with a purpose. And what is that purpose? The kingdom of God. Jesus is that purpose. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we come before you right now. We are so thankful for your word. 
God, I ask that any word spoken this morning that was not from your heart, will it fall to the wayside? Lord Jesus, only your words and your plan for this morning, I want to, to last and to cling. And I pray, Lord, that any word from you, any, any revelation from you, God, will it cling to our hearts? Will it renew us? Will it restore us? Will it change us, Jesus? We thank you for your word, and we thank you that you loved us enough to come. You loved us to give your life, Father, for us, and you loved us with a purpose, and you loved us with a kingdom in mind. Lord Jesus, will you encourage us to love others with the kingdom in mind? Lord Jesus, we love you so, so much. In your name we pray, amen.